Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Artyom Lukin, who is an IR scholar, associate professor and deputy uh, director for research at the School of Regional and International Studies at Far Eastern Federal University in Vladivostok. He's one of my top Russian experts to follow on Twitter. Thank you for joining the podcast, Artyom. How are things way out there in the Far East? Well, uh, things uh, are not very good, but <laughs> not very bad either. Uh, I think it's uh, pretty much like uh, everywhere else uh, in the world. And, you know, uh, this summer uh, in Vladivostok has been uh, remarkable uh, because, because of the weather. Uh, actually, uh, we had a few weeks of extremely hot uh, weather, uh, which uh, people, which the people here had never experienced. Uh, so uh, I think uh, uh, this is something which makes people in Russia, uh, in the Russian Far East as well, uh, realize that uh, climate change is for real. So uh, uh, even though you introduced me uh, as an international relations scholar, which uh, uh, I am for sure, but lately, uh, lately I have been interested more and more in, uh, in climate change. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I will be transiting uh, into, uh, into the area uh, which I myself call or as uh, the geopolitics of climate change. Uh, this is uh, uh, a subfield of uh, international relations, which do not yet, which does not yet exist, but I think uh, it will, uh, it will, you know, it will become a, a new field of international relations studies uh, and political science uh, in general uh, pretty soon. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, uh, again, and, and even today, even though uh, it's, uh, it's one of the last days of summer uh, in Vladivostok, and uh, towards the end uh, of, of summer, we tend to have cooler uh, weather, but still it's uh, quite, quite hot, quite humid. Uh, so, oh, yeah, <laughs> I think it's, uh, apart, from, apart from the COVID, uh, it's one of the main, you know, impressions of, uh, of this year here in Vladivostok and in the Russian East, and uh, you know that uh, not in Vladivostok, not in the Russian East, but uh, kind of in eastern Siberia, we have had huge uh, wildfires in, uh, in the Republic of uh, Yakutia. Fortunately, uh, the wildfires uh, have been uh, put out uh, already, uh, but uh, they uh, they were raging for for like a month or even more. So that's another uh, that's another alarming uh, sign that uh, climate change is real and uh, it's already impacting Russia. But again, uh, I think that for Russia, it's uh, it's it's it uh, it may have not only negative but also positive effects so uh, i'm sorry for <laughs> no, <laughs> for getting uh, no. for getting astray uh, but uh, this is really something that 
uh, I'm thinking uh, uh, a lot uh, uh, these days. Yeah. So, so my guests are having a tendency to ask answer some of my uh, last questions first. So, you know, this was one of my questions later on. Well, you know, what's pressing on on your mind? And I, I think we could save this perhaps for a subsequent uh, interview. So, I had no idea of your interest on climate change. So, perhaps. In a further interview, we can we can um, discuss that. I know here where I am in in Mexico, it's always uh, warm. So, um, Professor Lucan, one of my someone one of my first questions was: I, I wanted to get kind of your big picture because you, you talk a lot about Russia, China, the U.S., uh, geopolitics, foreign policy, and so I, I wanted to get your thoughts on the decline of American hegemony, uh, as you see it, you know, we're seeing what's happening now in Afghanistan and, and elsewhere. So, you know, th- and then we can drill down from there looking at, at China and Russia. So wh- where do you see America today? Oh, uh, well, uh, frankly, uh, I'm a little uh, bored uh, speaking about America and the decline of uh, American hegemony. I think well, that's something which is quite clear to almost uh, everyone. Uh, so uh, I don't think I could add anything new and original here. Of course, it's uh, uh, there is little doubt that uh, America's hegemony is uh, on the wane. Uh, the question is... Uh, what is going to replace uh, America's hegemony? Uh, well, uh, my my sense is that uh, we are entering uh, a period of uh, bipolarity again. Uh, this time, of course, it will be uh, a bipolarity uh made up of uh the US and China uh and you know or uh I think it will it will come sooner than most analysts expected maybe uh but uh by the way uh well I remember Actually, one of my favorite books on uh, international politics uh, is written by uh, Muthia Alagappa, who is uh, who is a Malaysian international relations scholar. And 20 years ago, he edited uh, a volume on Asian security. So it was published like in 2003. And what he predicted uh, in this book was that uh, American hegemony was going to last for at least uh, 20-25 years. Uh, And now I find this prediction, you know, very true because uh, it has been 20 years (laughs) since, uh, since the year 2000 when we observed the peak of American hegemony. So two decades uh, have passed, and now we can clearly see that uh, the American dominance uh, is beginning to 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 crack. Uh, so, uh, actually, uh, some analysts uh, they uh, got it right. Uh, the problem is that the time 
has passed so fast, <laughs> almost imperceptibly, uh, that uh, you know we have not almost noticed. So that's the problem. In fact, uh, 20, 25 years uh, is a lot of time uh, in, in modern era. And, you know, psychologically, uh, psychologically, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's understandable how people back in 2000, even very clever analysts, they are argued that American hegemony uh, may last for, for another 20, 25 years, but after that, it's kind of, it's kind of uncertain. But when people back then, when they read such stuff and when they saw, oh, 20, 25 years, it's, oh, it sounded like almost forever, you know. But this was not forever. And now this uh, 20, 25 years, they have ended. So uh, what seemed like forever back in 2000, now it's over. So uh, what... what uh, I'm sorry for for this rambling, uh, you know, uh, monologue. But uh, my point is that uh, nothing is forever. So uh, American hegemony uh, was very powerful thing, and it remains. So actually, I wouldn't underestimate the resilience uh, of the United States, its power, and its determination to stay. Uh, at the top, but uh, again, uh, changes are, are always uh, happening. So whether you like it or not, uh, China has become uh, the second pole in uh, in the global geopolitical order. Uh, so the question is uh, for how long this bipolarity. Uh, would persist, and uh, whether uh, whether it's going to be a, uh, a long time phenomenon, uh, uh, which will last for many decades, or even a century, or or even uh, more than a century, or uh, if this uh, bipolarity uh, going to be just a short-lived, relatively short-lived phenomenon, which will be replaced by some um, other uh, kind of, uh, of a geopolitical order, maybe multipolarity with India, for example, joining uh, the ranks of uh, superpowers, or I don't know, you know Brazil or uh, some other players, uh, or whether we are going to see some kind of, you know, uh, some new edition of uh, medieval ages uh, with a great number of uh, very diverse players. So that, that's, uh, that's a question which is impossible to answer with certainty right now. But my prediction would be that uh, this new bipolarity uh, is quite sustainable, is going to be quite sustainable, and I think it will last uh, at least until, uh, until the second half uh, of the 21st century. Yeah, so mm -hmm. China and the US at the top, 
Uh, and for Russia, for, for my own country, uh, the question is how, uh, how Russia is going to adjust, uh, to adapt to, to this uh, uh, new order, whether Russia uh, will uh, stay uh, as an independent, completely independent player, albeit uh, not at the top tier, but at least at the second tier of uh, geopolitical players, uh, just one notch down uh, the US and China, or whether Russia uh, is going to become uh, a junior partner to, to China or, or maybe to the West, uh, because uh, I believe that uh, even though Russia's relations with the West are terrible right now, but uh, in principle, uh, they might get better they might recover not now but uh 10 or 15 years from now i wouldn't rule it out uh so russia could uh could become a partner of the west or uh against china or uh, uh it's uh it's not very likely but uh, that's one uh, uh that's one possible scenario at least so yeah yeah, I would just add, you know, uh, another analyst that I, I know who you're talking about, but I can't pronounce his name. But I've had on uh, Johan Galtung a, a few times, and he accurately predicted, I believe, 1980, that the Soviet Union would collapse by 1990. And he has said that also he thought U.S. empire would collapse by 2020, 2025. So you see a, a number of independent minds thinking on the same frequency. I, I love your writing, by the way. I, I just wanted to cite some of it. Um, that, that, that's why I follow your Twitter feed. I, I think you have very succinct uh, insights. And I thought this was a hilarious and ge genius line in a paper you wrote that people can find on ResearchGate. I'll include the link. A quote, Beijing can no longer hope that the Kremlin's shenanigans will distract Washington from de dealing with China. The metaphorical eye of Sauron is now firmly on China. Beijing will either have to capitulate to the U.S., renouncing its superpower ambitions or take a stand if it chooses the latter, as seems most likely it needs strong allies to withstand American pressure, uh, end quote. So just just to just to get your further thoughts on China, you mentioned this bipolarity, like new new Cold War going forward for the next you know half century, which I, I agree is a possibility. What, el what else is interesting for you regarding China? You know, what type of superpower ambitions does it have um a lot of people say you know historically china has never gone far beyond its own borders so what is most important for you when looking at china today yeah you know uh i think uh the biggest problem uh the biggest difficulty with understanding china and trying to predict china's future course china's future trajectory uh, is that china is are absolutely uh non-transparent for outside observers you know it's a complete black box i would say so no one including the russians uh really understand what china wants or what China intends to do. Uh, on the one, uh, I think one reason for this, you know, black box <laughs> phenomenon is that uh, China's 
uh, system uh, of decision making uh, is absolutely opaque. China being, of course, a party state autocracy. So the decisions uh, are made by a very narrow uh, group of people who make decisions in a very secretive, uh, secretive way. So that's one problem. And uh, another problem is that China's uh, civilization is very peculiar. It's very different from, uh, from European ways, or not only European ways, from you know, Muslim ways and uh, so on. Uh, so China is a civilization onto itself. Uh, and, you know, yeah, frankly, I don't know what China is up to. No, I'm not sure uh, whether China wants global hegemony. So uh, the U.S. establishment uh, is now almost convinced that China is determined to replace uh, the U.S. as the global, you know, uh, overlord. <laughs> uh, but maybe the U.S. Uh, is just projecting its own you know, psychology, its own mindset on China. Uh, I'm not sure that China wants to become uh, uh, a new Sauron, so, so to speak. But uh, having said that, who knows? Maybe they do want to, to become uh, the global hegemon. We, we have no way to know. So when it comes to, to the U.S., when it comes to understanding uh, the U.S. intentions and the U.S. behavior, you know, everything is absolutely understandable and transparent. Uh, the U.S. does not uh, hide its desire to stay as uh, the global dominant power. Uh, and uh, it, uh, this makes it easier for, for Russia to deal with the U.S. because uh, the Americans, so the Russians understand the Americans and the Americans, uh, well, uh, they, I think they do understand Russia in general, yeah, more or less, more or less. But no one can understand China. <laughs> so that's the problem because if you don't understand someone, uh, this results in suspicions, right? This results in fears. Uh, and uh, these fears may not be, in fact, substantiated. They may not be justified, but we just tend to fear what we don't understand. So we are afraid of, you know, aliens, for example, yeah. Uh, maybe that there are not even aliens out there, and even if uh, the aliens exist, they might be completely peaceful. But we do uh, uh, fear them because you know it's something unknown to us. So China is uh, is like those aliens. So we, I think we, uh, what we know about China is maybe just 
little more than we know about uh, aliens from from the space. <laughs> so that's the biggest issue uh, w- with China. And again, th- this is a problem not only for, for the US, but also for Russia. Uh, uh, even though Russia uh, and China, uh, even though they are strategic partners or almost allies, but of course, uh, the Russians uh, cannot fully uh, understand China. And uh, that's why we cannot fully trust them. So this is a very peculiar relationship between Russia and China. Yes, there is a real strategic partnership, almost alliance, but uh, this alliance uh, is not based on full trust. Uh, It's based on uh, pure transactionalism. Uh, So uh, I think this uh, Russia-China alliance is okay for, for now and for the foreseeable future, but uh, who knows what happens uh, 20 years from now. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that was one of my other questions. And I'll, I just wanted to cite from an article. So you, you wrote uh, a piece for 9-Line, um, I believe, where you talked about Russia, the, the bear becoming, you know, the dragon's strategic mercenary, quote, in a nutshell, Russia could become a giant military contractor, a 21st century uh, condottiero state and a nuclear armed one at that a broke but still militarily strong and audacious country that does the bidding of a rich superpower for remuneration, um, which would be China, uh, end quote. So just your thought then on how Russia is doing, you know, where is Russia at uh, right now? You said it it would likely become a a second tier between China uh, and the U.S., but in general, you know, in the article, you kind of allude to China, Russia not having strong economy, but being having its strong military. So what is important for us to know about Russia today? Oh, well, uh, this article that you uh, quoted, uh, actually, uh, I, uh, I make a reservation in the article that this scenario is highly hypothetical, so it's uh, theoretically possible, but uh, I don't think it's uh, v- very likely. Uh, 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 but uh, the reason I uh, write about such uh, scenarios is that you should be prepared for almost you know anything. So I think the last uh, 40 years in world politics <laughs> uh, have absolutely uh, demonstrated that almost anything is possible. As someone who uh, was born in the Soviet Union, who uh, spent his childhood and teenage years as a Soviet citizen, and then almost overnight the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, Uh, uh, this, uh, of course, this experience, uh, yeah, uh, makes you understand that everything is possible and you should be prepared for almost infinite uh, range of uh, possibilities. So speaking of uh, uh, Russia's future relationship uh, with China, uh, I think uh, Russia would remain uh, an independent player, uh, uh, even though Russia's economy uh, is not in a very good shape, 
and it's unlikely that our, our Russia's economy would get much better in the foreseeable future. But still, uh, Russia, uh, Russia's identity is based on this uh, idea of maintaining uh, sovereignty and independence, and we are not going to trade. Uh, we're not going, you know, to. Uh, uh, well, sorry, uh, let me reformulate it. Uh, Russia, ha as you know, has been adamant in resisting American hegemony. Uh, and of course, uh, Chinese hegemony is no less acceptable uh, for Russia than uh, American one. Uh, so uh, uh, I don't think, again, uh, that Russia is going to become China's junior partner or you know vassal or satellite uh, whatever you call it in the foreseeable uh, future uh, actually uh, Russia might become China's mercenary yeah but mercenary is not the same as vassal it's not the same as a subordinate so if Russia becomes China's mercenary, or uh, it will be, uh, it will still remain an independent power. It will just provide some, you know, services <laughs> for for China in exchange for you know money, for example. So it will be based on pure transactionalism, and Russia will do it for as long as uh, it profits. Russia will do it for as long as it uh, profits. Uh, itself uh, so even this mercenary scenario uh, it uh, it uh, uh, presupposes that Russia remains a strategically uh, independent uh, player so uh, my prediction is that uh, for the next uh, 20 years uh, Russia will certainly remain, uh, an independent strategic player, which retains enough uh, power, enough geopolitical power to have a, to have a meaningful influence on uh, global geopolitics. Yeah. What happens after uh, after that? What happens after twenty forty? It's anyone's guess. So I I'm not. Uh, daring enough to 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 predict what's going to happen in 2050 for example <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh at least until 2040 i think uh i think russia will, will stay as a major uh, independent power which may or may not be china's ally or partner but it will be independent strategically independent all right um i had another question which i think was this topic was was very important. Uh, you you wrote a startling uh, op-ed for RT claiming that an era of isolationism is coming to the world. Uh, I say startling because this is exactly what I was fearing, and hearing it from you kind of only further confirmed my own dreaded hypothesis. You wrote, quote, during my recent visit to Moscow, one of Russia's best foreign policy experts said something that 
Many of us are thinking, but still reluctant to recognize the world has entered an era of closed borders and restricted travel. This new age of isolationism will last years, maybe decades. It is the COVID-19 pandemic that has triggered the closure of borders, but the geopolitics of intensifying great power rivalry may be a more profound cause of this uh, new reality. Uh, we're still, we were talking about this a bit before we started the interview, but you know what we're seeing, it's, it's difficult to travel now internationally. Um, you know, countries are locking down, they're introducing these kind of social credit system, vaccine passport measures, and it's become just this huge bureaucracy to attempt to travel anywhere now between PCR tests, different kinds of PCR tests that are not accepted here. Uh, and so what's, what's all this about this, 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 um, era of isolationism? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, actually, uh, I have to say that uh, maybe uh, I was too pessimistic uh, when uh, I, I wrote <coughs> when I wrote this piece. Uh, ju just uh, to give you one uh, one positive example, uh, uh, here in Vladivostok at my Forest and Federal University, we have just concluded a summer school for foreign students. Uh, which uh, brought together uh, uh, students uh, from mostly from Europe, mostly from Germany, and uh, even one girl from South Korea came. Uh, there were also students from Hungary and uh, the UK. Uh, and actually, when uh, uh, I was contacted uh, by the organizers uh, of the school and asked to to uh, to participate as a lecturer, I was shocked because I didn't expect uh, uh, this school to happen this year. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the fact that you know international events, you know physical international events like this uh, summer school uh, at our university that they still continue to be held, it shows that. Uh, people, especially young people, they have this irresistible urge to travel, and uh, it is not so easy to prevent them from traveling. <laughs> so maybe, again, maybe I was too pessimistic in my article, but still I stand by my conclusion that, uh, that the era of, uh, of free global travel uh, that we enjoyed uh, for uh, for for the last uh, twenty five years, it's over. Uh, it's over for now, and it's not only due to uh, to the coronavirus pandemic, but it's also due to to the world, you know, splitting into uh, closed, pre pretty much closed geopolitical blocks. Uh, and are especially concerning is that uh, big uh, powers like China, uh, they are you know closing their borders. So look at China. So we already uh, spoke a little bit about China. And now it's getting uh, clear that China uh, is trying to, you know, to eject foreigners, you know, uh, to not only to limit the number of foreigners entering China, but also to try to, yeah, 
try to make those foreigners that are still in China to leave the country. So uh, it seems like Beijing, like the Chinese leadership, uh, they're consciously trying to isolate China, you know. Uh, and uh, why is that? Maybe because uh, they believe that uh, China has already become self-sufficient, which is, I think, partly uh, partly true. Uh, so uh, when you have a number of small number of major countries who run the world, and uh, those countries are entering self-isolation for various reasons, you get a world which is, you know, much more restricted in travel or in travel opportunities. So uh, I think that uh, a kind of world we are entering right now, it, it will not be completely, you know, closed and compartmentalized. It will be something uh, in between, uh, you know, uh, there will be, of course, opportunities to, to travel, but uh, they will be relatively limited. And I think we, we, we have to, to adjust uh, to, to, to this uh, new reality. Maybe for people like you and me, it's okay because we have already had our share of international travel. <laughs> but uh, for, uh, for youngsters, uh, it will be sad. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do hope, I do hope that at least Russia, uh, at least Russia will stay open. And if you, if, if you look at Russia's current uh, border uh, and travel policies, I think Russia remains one of the most open countries in the world uh, in terms of international travel. So we uh, allow, uh, the Russian government allows Russians to, to travel yeah, abroad uh, 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 without any restrictions. And Russia allows uh, foreigners to, to come uh, from, I think, from, uh, from most countries. So I think uh, in this uh, particular dimension, Russia is uh, probably one of the most liberal countries in the world right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that would be my response. All right. Yeah. I was. I think I was there four years ago in Russia, and it was a fantastic time. Um, since it was, so we're kind of getting your take, your snapshot from around the world on the, the U.S., China. Russia, this COVID uh, isolationism, just to get your quick thought on Europe. I think it was yesterday or today that you uh, made a tweet uh, on Europe uh, saying that Europe may simply exchange American hegemony for Chinese hegemony. Someone on my Twitter feed that interacts with me, Victoria Topalova, disagreed and said that the current political situation in the EU points to Europe's complete dependence on transatlanticism. Most likely, she says, Europe may become China's partner only if Russia does this first and becomes a security guarantor for Europeans as well as a global geopolitical bridge. Um, where do you see the EU in between, uh, you know, uh, America, Russia, and China? Well, uh... Frankly, I uh, I'm not uh, a big expert uh, on Europe. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, again, uh, when I compare uh, Russia and uh, Europe, 
of course, it's striking that Russia is so adamant about its independence, uh, whether in regard to the West or uh, with regard to, to China. Uh, but Europe uh, has for decades existed as an entity uh, which is subordinate to someone else. So right now, uh, Europe's, uh, Europe's, you know, uh, uh, someone who, who Europe is subordinate to right now, it's, it's the US. Uh, but, and frankly, I don't think uh, this uh, tweet of mine was, of course, what it was a little bit provocative. Uh, and uh, I don't think that it's very likely that Europe uh, would become uh, would become China's satellite, but we can't rule it out either. So uh, it may be implausible uh, uh, within the next few years. But again, what happens in 2040? So. Uh, Come 2040, what happens? How Europe would look like? Uh, and uh, if China plays its cards right, if China acts wisely and smart uh, on the global stage and towards Europe, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe uh, Europe would decide that uh, at least some key countries in Europe are, or would decide that, well, why not, why not become partners with China, you know? And if China offers uh, to Europe uh, generous terms, uh, you know, uh, Europe might accept it. So. Uh, let me let me put it you know straight so the europeans are very much addicted to their material prosperity right so the question is what which is more important to europe you know money and prosperity and or, or, or abstract freedom and abstract values so <laughs> uh, I think this is uh, a question that uh, the Europeans may be uh, afraid of asking themselves because that's a very hard question, you know. <laughs> of course, uh, outwardly they say that, you know, of course values, you know, uh, have the highest priority, but I have my doubts when they have to choose between prosperity and values and uh, if it turns out that prosperity needs uh, prosperity requires becoming a kind of kind of junior partner to China then who knows uh, what choice Europe would make but again uh, it's not going to happen right now not in five years but in 15 20 25 years who knows yeah, I, I think that's a very important question you, you bring up. And unfortunately, I mean, I think that's one of the key questions, whether uh, Europeans want more, you know, just material prosperity or the historic, you know, values of liberty and freedom. And unfortunately, 
I feel it's it's tending away from the values of liberty and more towards um, prosperity, uh, materialism. Um, oh, you would agree. You would agree with my point, right? That, yeah, I, I, I can uh, feel it. Uh, I can see it, it. It's not impossible, right? No, no I, I think we can already see a tr uh, the beginning of a trend there. As you say, how it plays out, we'll have to see. Um, I had another question about, you know, may maybe you're tired uh, as well uh, of this question, but perhaps for, for listeners, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin brings up a lot of mixed emotions. You know, some view him as a nationalistic patriot who revived Russia. Uh, uh, some Russians that I met in Russia said they don't like him personally, but they see him as the least worst option uh, for the moment. Um, of course, you've got other Russians and foreigners who, who, who hate Putin and view him as some kind of Dr. Evil. Um, you know, at this stage in the game, in the year 2021, how do you see Vladimir Putin and um, what would you tell us is most important to, to note about him? And, and by the way, I don't know if you have any comments. Paul, Paul Goebel, uh, interesting analyst, has said Shoigu may potentially be lining up to replace uh, Putin. So just your thoughts. Uh, what, what, would be, what would be important for us outside of Russia to know uh, about Putin? Well, uh, personally, I, I'm not a supporter of Putin. I think uh, last time I uh, voted for Putin uh, uh, in presidential elections was maybe in 2004. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it's not good uh, to have uh, the same, you know, uh, ruler for more than 20 years. So uh, uh, people... Uh, at the helm, they should change, you know. So uh, uh, my personal view is that uh, the sooner Putin goes, the better. Yeah, uh, but uh, but uh, of course Putin uh, remains Russia's legitimate leader, and uh, uh, I may not like him. Uh, personally, but a lot of Russians uh, do support him. Uh, so uh, I think uh, he's unlikely uh, uh, to leave anytime soon unless uh, there is some uh, major crisis uh, happening uh, in Russia which would force him uh, to go uh, and, you know, uh, Putin has survived this COVID crisis, or uh, and uh, or last year, uh, you may remember that when uh, the pandemic started and the price of of oil plunged, uh, it looked like a you know, perfect storm, uh, which Putin might not be able to to uh, survive. But uh, now it. It looks okay for him, uh, but who knows what uh, what other perfect storms are are in store for him? And uh, you know, I don't know. So uh, uh, it's uh, difficult to predict uh, for how long he will uh, remain uh, uh, Russia's uh, paramount leader. I think even if he uh, formally retires uh, and uh, power uh, uh, power uh, uh, is uh, given to some success, uh, be it Shoigu or anyone else, uh, I think 
still the Putin regime, the Putin state, as I prefer to call it, the Putin state, uh, will still uh, remain in place. Uh, with Putin remaining uh, as Dan Xiaoping, uh, the informal uh, paramount leader. Uh, so, uh, and frankly, uh, that's a very difficult question. Uh, uh, I, I may not like Putin personally, but uh, I do understand that for, for Putin and for the Putin state to go, it takes a huge crisis to, to hit Russia. You know, <laughs> and frankly, I don't want any crisis or revolutions or calamities hitting Russia. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, it's uh, something like that. Yeah. And finally, I would like to say that uh, even though I may not like Putin, but uh, I do realize that uh, uh, Putin uh, is... Uh, uh, is inside me because Putin uh, reflects uh, uh, in a very big way reflects Russia's national psyche, Russia's you know national mindset. So uh, that's why uh, he he has been so success successful, and that's why he has been so powerful be because he more or less reflects. Uh, 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 all uh, uh, the, the wishes and desires and instinct instincts of uh, of the Russians, including myself. <laughs> so yeah, that's complicated and that's completely unpredictable. Russia is Russia's political trajectory, as history shows, is is not predictable. So it may look like Russia Russia's state is very strong. But then something happens, and you know uh, the state is gone. You know revolution happens, and you know uh, the family of the ruling family is executed in, in a basement. You know in Yekaterinburg, even though just a few years earlier people adored Tsar Nicholas II and you know his family. Uh, and there was a surge of patriotism when uh, when the First World War started uh, in 1914, you know. But in 1918, just uh, the Tsar and his family were killed by the Bolsheviks. So that, that gives you just one idea how uh, unpredictable uh, Russia is. So uh, I would really re refrain from making uh, any predictions here. Frankly, I, I don't think that Shoigu is going to become... Uh, Putin's successor, but uh, even uh, uh, if he is again, as I said, uh, the Putin state will uh, will will uh, will remain, and Putin uh, will uh, will uh, will stay as uh, the paramount leader. Yeah. Um, just we have just some minutes left uh, in the context of what we've been talking about. I mean, I know you're in the Far East. You also write about a lot of other topics. You talk about North Korea. In the context of what we've been discussing, is there any other interesting uh, topic, country, or, or issue that you want to bring up? Uh, yeah, as you said, I'm, um, I'm interested in, um, uh, in the Korean Peninsula, uh, maybe because um, uh, Korea is very close geographically and actually 
you know, if you uh, if you come to Vladivostok and uh, then you go to Korea, like places like Seoul or Busan or Pyongyang, uh, you will see that uh, it's uh, the same region uh, in terms of geography, in terms of, you know, terrain, in terms of weather, uh, climate. Uh, so if you if you live and work here, you have to uh, to to be interested uh, in in Korea and actually North Korea uh, is a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Uh, again, as we just talked about Putin, uh, uh, you know Russia's political trajectory uh, is unpredictable, and I think uh, this is also true with regard to North Korea, even though. Uh, uh, even though uh, the North Korean regime, the Kim dynasty, uh, looks, you know, uh, unshakable uh, and very resilient, uh, and it looks like uh, it will stay forever. But I'm not sure. Actually, uh, I would say that uh, if tomorrow the North Korean regime if, if collapses, I. I will not be surprised at all. <laughs> Do you know why? It's just because we don't know what the North Koreans think. <laughs> you know? uh, they may wholeheartedly support and adore the Kim dynasty. Uh, it looks like it, but uh, the question is what they really think and how they are going to be to behave when some shock comes when some crisis comes so uh again i uh north korea is very unique but i wouldn't be surprised if it disappears uh overnight uh uh next year for example so be, be prepared for it <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I would agree anything is possible you know that's what russians told me um, when I was in Russia or when I was living in the former Soviet Union in Kazakhstan, they, they never imagined, you know, the Soviet collapse. And I think a um, similar thing in, in my parents' homeland of, well, Yugoslavia, where they came from. No one, you know, everyone is shocked when these things happen. Um, I, I guess since we started, myself as an American, when we started talking about America, I thought maybe we, we could end because you've written a few articles uh, as well on no November 16th. You wrote of the possibility of, of civil war in the United States and how it could be averted through anti-China uh, sentiment uh, later on January 5th. I mean, that's quite the timing, right? Right before January 6th, you wrote, quote, despite talk of an impending civil war in the U.S., I don't believe it will happen. Fear of violence and chaos in mature societies has become sufficient to prevent domestic conflicts breaking out, uh, end quote. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, for America uh, on the road ahead? Well, uh, I think, again, it's too early to to dismiss America as uh, some, some people uh, do. Uh, and I have uh, a lot of respect and admiration for, for the U.S., uh, uh, by the way. And uh, I don't think that uh, America is going to descend uh, into civil war and go the way uh, of the Soviet Union. Actually, <laughs> it's interesting that uh, uh, quite a few people in Russia, uh, yeah, they tend to believe that uh, 
uh, or pretend to, to believe uh, that uh, America is another Soviet Union. For example, the head of Russia's foreign intelligence, Sergei Narishkin, uh, uh, a few months ago, he said that uh, America looks like the late Soviet Union, you know, destined for for crisis or maybe even collapse. I don't agree with such assessments. I think that uh, uh, the Biden administration uh, uh, has been quite successful, in my view, uh, even though uh, there was uh, a lot of mockery uh, in Russia uh, about Biden, about his, you know, old age, his, you know, senility, <laughs> uh, uh, suppose senility. But if you look at what's happening in the States, I think uh, uh, post-Trump, the United States has been doing quite good, you know, uh, both uh, domestically and uh, in uh, geopolitics too. Yes, uh, there is this uh, failure in Afghanistan, but uh, this failure, uh, it uh, it was predetermined long time ago, you know, uh, uh, much earlier than uh, Biden uh, came uh, to the White House. And I think that uh, Biden made uh, an absolutely right decision to withdraw from, uh, from uh, Afghanistan. So uh, I think... Uh, uh, we can uh, we can uh, uh, in the next few decades we can enjoy a very interesting you know uh, spectacle of uh, the U.S. and China <laughs> competing with uh, with each other uh, and uh, uh, I. I don't think uh, who who is going uh, to win uh, this uh, this competition, uh, but uh, again, I I wouldn't dismiss uh, the U.S. and uh, right now I think you know America's odds for for winning they still look better than than China's, yeah. And yeah, I would uh, agree as well. For, for the longest time, I have been more of the mindset um, of the, the decline of U.S. empire. One of the first people I've interviewed on this podcast was cultural historian Morris Berman, who's written a trilogy on the decline of American empire. But I'm surprised to see the resiliency, uh, as you said, uh, of America. It's, it's there. It's quite resilient. And actually, I hope America continues being um, resilient. Uh, I think we'll we'll leave it there. You're on yeah, and, uh, one, one more one more thing I would like to to add about America. You know, America's I, I, I'm not original, of course, uh, in this statement, but America is an open system. Uh, so unlike China, which, as we just discussed, unlike China, which uh, has been entering this uh, self isolation mode, uh, America's. I think uh, still remains very much open, and uh, the Americans, uh, the U.S. establishment, uh, they do understand, and the American people in general, I think they do understand that uh, America's openness uh, uh, is something that gives it a lot of strength. So uh, I think uh, it gives America an edge in, in this unfolding competition with China. Yeah, I definitely agree. And as you say, it's going to be a, 
very interesting uh, coming few years uh, and decades. You are on Twitter at Artyom Lukin. Is there any other website or project we should know about? Well, I think Twitter is my primary uh, primary uh, platform for uh, my English-speaking uh, audience. So I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. All right. Uh, I can't recommend uh, Artyom's uh, work and his profound uh, insights. I guess for us, the the, the place to go is, is Twitter. Uh, and do follow him. And spasiba for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Yeah, thank you, Hrue, uh, for uh, having me here uh, today. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, I, I, I would be happy to uh, talk to you in future, maybe, you know. In 25 years, you know. <laughs> yeah, maybe, uh, maybe sooner, hopefully sooner, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored, YouTube has deleted some of our videos and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.